Welcome to episode 45 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey folks, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining today. I am super excited and also, to be honest, maybe feeling a little uh, nervous or uneasy about this episode uh, that I'm going to be sharing with you called Uncovering the Truth, We Are Oppressing People with Disabilities. And I think the way that the, the reason why I'm feeling this way is there's many very powerful messages that guest Lynn Siegel, uh, the CEO of Hope House Foundation out of Virginia in, in the United States, shares with me on this podcast. And um, I think that nervous feeling that I get is really when I think about the truth and how I've oppressed people with with disabilities in the past and the realizations that this podcast or this conversation with Lynn really helped me to uncover within myself. So I'm excited to share it with you because I hope it provides the same perspective for you that it that it provided for me and helps you to realize some of those truths or beliefs that uh, that you might hold and uh, some perspectives that you might consider that that might be a little different than the ones that you hold now so Lynn joins us to share more about Hope House and the journey that they've been on and uh, she shares when they found out that people really didn't want to live in group homes um, and how the model that they had created was oppressing people. And she talks about really just doing the right thing for the people that they serve to to serve their needs and what they actually wanted, which was uh, helping people to create a home of their own. And we also have a good conversation around how we are responsible for the oppression of people with disabilities. And it's our responsibility to do something about it. So I feel this is a very powerful conversation. Um, it's one that I hope as many people as possible listen to. So if you find value out of this conversation or it invokes some feeling within you, please share it with, with others. So with uh, without any more ado, here is Lynn Siegel. Hi, Lynn. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for having me, Eric. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to have you on the podcast today. Uh, so Lynn is the uh, executive director of Hope House in Virginia in the United States. And Lynn, I'm just going to kind of hand over the mic to you for a couple of minutes here. Mm-hmm. And could you just tell us maybe a little bit more about um, Hope House and a little bit more about um, yourself and, and, and who you are? Sure. Uh, Hope House Foundation is a not-for-profit organization that was started by family members about mm, 45 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, These uh, family members uh, were pretty much revolutionaries uh, because at that time, the only thing really available for people who were adults with developmental or intellectual disabilities um, was institutions or large training centers or living in the family home. And this small band of rabble-rousers or disruptors said, uh, 
that's not good enough. Um, why aren't people with disabilities living in the neighborhoods? Uh, why do they have to go away and be warehoused or, or live with people with shared labels but no shared interests? So they started the first group home um, in the state of Virginia and ran it themselves. Um, I really like that history because I think we're still engaged in what they felt was um, a social justice issue and not a disability issue. We support uh, 125 people, uh, all of whom live in their own home. We have about 260 staff, about half of them are part time. I've been with the organization for, I'm in my 38th year. So I started um, as a much younger woman and never in my wildest dreams, if you'd asked me then, would I be here now? Um, and what, upon reflection, I think what uh, really that is about is I wanted to change the world. I was very attracted to changing the world and especially uh, changing uh, the way that people with disabilities were isolated or not valued. Um, what I didn't realize in my younger days was that work, that that work doesn't really have a stopping point, unfortunately, yet. <laughs> um, it's a long journey. And um, stick that stick to it nest. Uh, I think that's what our founders had. And certainly I represent that as well. Hmm. I love that. And uh, that's the first time I've heard the term rebel rousers, and I like it. Would you call yourself a rebel rouser? <laughs> Oh, I would. Oh, I would. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's probably one of the nicer names. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be happy if people called you that. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. I think the I I love the ambition that you have to to change the world and and um, and to make it uh, a better place for people with developmental or intellectual disabilities. And I think that's what drew me to connect with you, um, Lynn, is in, in, in sharing that same purpose or, or common vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this organization, um, Hope House, that, that you're leading has gone through a tremendous amount of change. So first off, a visionary organization that started the first group home. So going from institutions to, to, to group homes, definitely a, a step in the right direction um, for people. Uh, but as you mentioned, you have 125 people living in their own home, uh, which is quite an awesome thing. So can you, I guess, share with us, like, how did that transition happen? Yes. Um, so this was uh, 1984, and we ask everyone in the organization, you know, we're doing our annual satisfaction check-in. We ask everyone if they liked uh, living where they were living. And at this point, we had uh, 14 group homes, fairly large group homes, you know, eight bed or even a couple of 10 beds. And everyone, everyone said, yes, they liked where they were living. And it is odd to 
ask 120-some folks one question and everybody answers it the same way, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially when it's a a personalized question, you know? It's not like, is it raining? Is is it sunny? It it was a personalized question. So we decided uh, to reward it. And we reworded it very slight, uh, changed it very slightly. And we asked, how do you want to live? And it opened the floodgates of very individualized and personalized responses. But they did fall, when we talked to everyone, they fell into three major categories. And the first and most dominant one was, I want my own home. That this group home, no matter how many times you tell me it's my home, um, I don't control who lives here. I don't control who works here. I don't control sometimes even what I eat or what I watch on TV. I don't own the key. This is not my home. This is your home. And that was uh, shocking to us because you can, especially when you're running congregate services, you can really get lulled in to that you're fooling people. You know, the, the, your home is where I work, but still it's your home. Um, and we weren't fooling anyone. And then the second uh, theme was people wanted a job. Uh, I mean, a job with a paycheck, a job that had a diverse workforce, um, where most of the people in 1984, and in fact, still to this day, uh, around the country, went to day centers or sheltered workshops or places, again, that everyone had a label of intellectual or developmentally disabled. Um, and so there, there was nothing like that happening for people. And the third was we put under the category of friendship and romance. Um, people express this probably in the most unique ways, um, wanting to have someone call them up and ask them to go to a movie and they weren't paid to be with them. Uh, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, getting married. Um, you know, some very modest and basic needs for around connection and belonging. So we were, um, uh, in those days, we were we defined being exceptional and, and excellent based on the fact that we had no licensure violations, meaning we met all the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, our paperwork was clean and well-organized and color-coded. We had no employee grievances. We had low staff turnover. Our group homes were all in middle to upper class neighborhoods, beautiful homes, you know, fine trimmed lawns and couches that matched the drapes. Um, You know, we just felt like this is what good services are. So when we kind of gathered all of these responses into these three themes, we audited all of our perfect program plans because Virginia held us up really as a model. And not one, not one program plan for any of these individuals addressed them getting their own home, a real job, or unpaid relationships in their life, whether they be romantic or friendship. And that was um, that was a dark, 
that was a dark time for us because it was a, a long fall because it requires you naturally to say, well, wait a minute. I mean, if your biggest stakeholders, if the people that have the most impact, you have the most impact on, um, are saying that what you're giving them is not what they want, um, that's daunting. That's that was very daunting. So we we started out like many providers do. You know, we started out by saying, "Okay, well, who has earned their who has earned their right to this?" Meaning, who is very skilled? Who is very um, already accomplished? Who really shouldn't be in the group home? So that those those folks first will get their freedom. And because um, they'll be the easiest, they're the most skilled, and they, they're least involved with their disability. And that was probably the first big lesson was that those people were not a, a group, a synonymous or homogeneous group at all, and were very unique in their own, their own lifestyles and what they, they wanted in their life. And we didn't find it easy at all. And it's... We also learned that we didn't know them. I mean, and that was hard to admit because some of these people we had supported for a decade or more. But when you support someone in a group, you know only know them in the context of the group, not really as an individual. So we started meeting people in a whole different way, and it was quite surprising, um, actually astonishing to us. And after that first year of closing down that first group home, um, we decided that we would, as a staff, study past civil rights movements in the United States. We wanted to understand what does oppression really look like? Um, how, how Are there any common themes in a, a marginalized population? And so we spent a year, twice a month, um, and we looked at all kinds of groups, um, the American Indian, women, um, the LGBT community, uh, as well as people of color. And one particular book we used a lot was um, Walking with the Wind by John Lewis, who worked with Martin Luther King. And that really crystallized things that that's when I think it, as a community at Hope House, we understood that oppression, regardless of the group, looks the same. I mean, it it has the same elements. And those elements existed in the disability system. Um, you know, keeping people poor, making sure that they have no money, um, limitation of choice, um, very few freedoms. I mean, all of the, all of those things um, were were alive and well in the disability service system. And so, at the end of that year, we said, "Okay, this isn't going to be about who's skilled or you know who's um, screaming the loudest to get out. Um, we're not going to run group homes. We're going to close every one of them, um, and we're going to start with the very basic." premise that everyone with a disability, regardless of how it impacts them, has a right to have their own home and be supported in a manner that they direct. It was really that basic, but it was such a huge fundamental change. So it took us 10 years to close down the remaining 13 group homes. 
and that was 22 years ago. So are we very proud of that? Yeah, but we're also kind of surprised and maybe even a little bored that it is something to talk about still in 2018 as something new or something that should be considered. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I can think of many organizations that support people with developmental disabilities are start just starting this thinking. Um, so it's odd. It's odd to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, so for a question that came to mind is, you know, I guess putting you back in, in 1984, you go and you ask the question, how do you want to live? You learn that those three common themes, people want their own home. They want a paying job and they want friendship and, and romance. Uh, and that's how they want to live. So you're, viewed as hope uh, hope house is viewed as the model for uh residential services for people with uh, intellectual developmental disabilities in virginia you take that information you sit down as a team and you look at it and you're like okay we're considered the model and we're not serving our customers at all uh, do mm -hmm. we do we blow this up like what what was the conversation like around that table um well Spirited. <laughs> That's what I recall. Uh, there was um, there was no one for us to look at and say, "Well, show us how you did it," or you know, examples. There were were none. Um, the system also had its rules and policies and funding mechanisms really set up on a group model as well. Um, really. Once I think what really helped unstick us from the debate was involving everyone, um, not only people with disabilities, but all the direct support staff and community members, and start having those conversations like, why do, why, what is the thinking about taking a label and putting people together? And what are the results of that? Because what we know is that housing for fill in the blank not does not work. You know, it does not work without diversity. We know that about the elderly being removed from younger people. We know that about people in poverty being removed from the middle class. Um, we know that about special education, putting kids only with disabilities and keeping them away from everyone else. We know that it's not only not good for the person being segregated, but it's not good from for the rest of the community or the rest of the school or or the rest of the city either. And so that's what we started talking about was not getting hung up on assessments or could this person cross the street or how much money would this kind of change have um, cost? What we stayed on, and which is what I think helped drive us, was really the social justice aspect of it. That's where we stay focused. Why would people with disabilities have to live in groups when I'm not required to? 
or the person supporting them isn't required to. Why would they have to? And let's not talk about money and let's not talk about skill. Let's just talk about the humanity of it. And once we stayed on that subject, then it really, I think we got very comfortable with the ambiguity of the whole undertaking. We were clear, we're not going to run group homes, you know, so was it possible that every family member or every person with a disability left our services and said, well, if you're not going to do that, I'm not staying. Yes, I guess that was, but it never occurred to us to dwell on that. It just felt so clear. It, It just felt so clear that what we were doing was wrong and we could no longer pretend that it was right. Right. You kind of uncovered the truth and couldn't ignore it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It takes so much energy to try to ignore it, but we could not. Right. And I think what what you did in terms of going in and asking the people that you serve, or you or were serving at the time, what their needs were and, and what they wanted from a service, more or less, like um, how did they want to live? And that's the service you're providing. Any good business or organization would go in and find that information out from their customers because in in any any kind of business context, um, I guess where the customer is paying you, if you're not providing a service that they're happy with um, and and that they're you know loving, then you're pretty quickly going to go out of business. And I understand the money flows a little bit differently in this right. context, but to me, that's also just good business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, really, when people say, well, what kind of ideal direct support professional are you looking for? And the first thing we'll say is someone with great customer service skills. <laughs> you know, we've got to reorient this field to who really is the customer. And I think it's also, I mean, I think the other thing is what's made it really easy for this industry to look almost exactly the same um, in in many instances as it did in the 70s, because what business really does? I mean, we can name any business that looks exactly the same as it as it did in the 70s. I mean, there's not many, many examples, but I think this industry has has been able to do that without the pressure of this customer base um, because of the nature around disability and also uh, consistent oppression, you know, into second class or even third class citizens. Um, when you look at social justice change and who leads it, um, in almost every example we looked at, the people that were being oppressed led it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the disability, especially the intellectual disability industry, uh, the very nature of the disability would require our support to lead a revolution. And we would be revolting against ourselves. That's a really important point. Um, as you mentioned, those, those other. Um, movements such as, um, you know, the empowerment of women, the black rights movement, um, mm-hmm. they all had very strong leaders from their own group uh, or groups. Yes. And um, yes. I think what I'm, I'm hearing from you, Lynn, is that it's our responsibility. It's everybody's responsibility 
to step up to help amplify those voices of people with intellectual disabilities and to help them get that social justice because it might be a little bit more challenging for someone within that group to step up and be that voice and and push that movement forward. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think we should engage, not necessarily based on, okay, can someone speak for themselves or not? I think we should engage because do we want communities, neighborhoods, and cities that are inclusive or do we not? And if the answer is yes, we do, well, there's responsibility in that. And there's a huge group that is left out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess in the, in the same topic around um, oppression. So you mentioned earlier um, the, the common traits of oppression, keeping people poor, limiting their choice, etc. cetera. To, to bring people out of oppression, do you, you like, what did you do? Do you just do the opposite? So do you help them build wealth? Do you give them choice or enable their yeah. uh, ability to choice? Can you talk to, to that a little bit? Yeah, I can tell you what our journey was. Is the, first, the first thing that really changed things was people having their own home. Um, you know, we made assumptions. We made assumptions that, well, everybody will want a roommate. They will want a roommate. Um, what we learned as soon as benefits started uh, flowing, because they flow differently in the United States when you're a single person versus in an agency group home, uh, the opposite was true. No one wanted a roommate except for people that uh, were romantically involved and so that's roommate is an inappropriate description then. It's a boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, wife, husband. Um, yeah, no one. No one wanted a roommate. They wanted their own home. And what came with that was forcing us to say, okay, Joe, what kind of support do you need from us? And it, it's, you know, it, it's, it was a disruption. I mean, it kind of flipped the table. And Joe telling us, this is what time I want to get up. This is what time I like to have my dinner if I need support. This is when I don't want to be disturbed. You know, this is the kind of technology I want to access. It, it changed all of the conversations. Uh, they were being led for the first time, at least in our history. I mean, we pretended that they were led by people with disabilities when we were in group homes, but you know, that's just being person-centered in language only. This was in behavior, you know, in reality. It was happening, you know. So we'd say, look, we're coming in. We'd like to come in and help you with whatever. And uh, the door's locked. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're saying it's not convenient time. Wait a minute, it's laundry night. Yeah, not tonight, not for me. Uh, my show's on. I mean, it was those basic very uh, subtle things collectively among 125 people that changed everything, changed everything. So starting there, just having your own home, um, a lot of control comes with that. And, you know, I think we chronically underestimate people with disabilities and we rarely overestimate them. And we learned um, so much that people that we thought would 
struggle just spread their wings and flew, and people we thought would do fine struggled in certain areas that we would have never predicted. And that support isn't just a line, you know, a straight line. It goes up and down. Uh, lives are messy. You know, you, you fall in love, support goes down, your mother dies, support goes up. I mean, it's like, it's just life. Certainly a focus on employment because um, having some economic power uh, just opens up more choices, whether that be pursuing your your unique leisure interest or being able to practice reciprocity and a friendship and say, no, I'll get lunch today or whatever. Um, it is very empowering to have some money. And certainly the system was not promoting that at all. And then the third, which I think is probably what we started working on last, but has has really had a shelf life of a very long time, is connection and belonging. Not having a service life, but having your life. That involves lots of people. Yeah, thank you for sharing kind of that formula. Not formula, but the the things that that worked for you and for the people that um, that you serve, I think one of the um, insights that I've had in and around uh, oppression and the development, uh, I guess, people with developmental disabilities is they don't have to be living in an institution or living in a group home to be oppressed. And I kind of came to this conclusion looking at my own family and, and my sister Sarah, who has a developmental disability. Um, and quite frankly, Sarah is being oppressed. She asked me about a month ago, she's, she says, Eric, how much money do I have? I'm like, that's, that's not a question a 34-year-old woman should be asking her brother. She should know how much money is in her bank account. She should have control right. over her bank account, right? So um, it goes right. in that column of keeping people poor, right? And, and then yes. lim limitation of choice. My parents still try and force their way in and, and make a lot of decisions um, about her life. And, and I stand up for her and, and help raise her voice up and, and help her to give her that power back. But I think that there's a lot more oppression going on than we really fully realize or acknowledge all, a lot of the time. Oh, yeah. I, I totally agree with you on that. You don't know. You don't have to be, you know, in a, in a large institution to experience oppression or you don't. Um, I mean, you can be in an eight bed group home and be very, very lonely and very, very isolated. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. Um, what what we found with just people starting with their own home is it really started with us changing how we viewed people and how we interacted and who who was you know who really was like we mentioned the customer but also when you're supporting people among people without disabilities you know the universe has a way of of moving along without you controlling it or without us controlling it you know the neighbor um you know, after several weeks of seeing you, starts saying hello and nice weather, and um, I see you have a cat. And, you know, th the natural rhythms that uh, someone without a disability experiences happen, and they're good. Mm -hmm. They're good, and it's not dark and scary and um, 
people with again with disabilities I find are underestimated uh, in terms of um, their radar and um, their skill levels about about how to just um, live their life. Mm-hmm. You know, very very different way when you're not controlled and criticism went up. You know, that's funny. That was a, a, a kind of startling to us is that when people started having choice about who worked with them, um, where they lived, what their, their days looked like, what their weekends looked like, criticism just skyrocketed, you know. Um, but then, again, when you look at any oppressed population um, without freedom, when freedom is finally there, then that's when you see the, and hear the criticism. Being free, being free allows for that. That's the sign that it's happening. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a, a good a good point as a as something to to look for and to actually celebrate rather than um, I guess look at negatively. Oh yeah, or like now you know you have to do. You know, I mean, I don't want eggs for breakfast. I want pizza. you know i don't want to do my laundry tonight you know i don't like this particular staff person i don't have to say why i just don't (laughs) yeah i don't need to explain myself it's just what i want so (laughs) yeah it's my life exactly exactly and you know we we say i mean again you know all of these years we let We've allowed people with disabilities to wait for our enlightenment, you know, when most of us are not very patient at all. But that's the that's that sneaky thing about oppression is it makes you think this is normal. It isn't. It isn't. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you had to change the way that you viewed people. And I don't I think this was kind of organizationally you were inferring. Yes. What is it that had to change or or what were the perspectives that you had and and what did they shift to? Well, probably the most dominant one was um, if you had that the level of disability or how it impacted your life um, related to how much you could direct your life. Um, So getting rid of that stereotype. Um, We support people today with very complex disabilities that don't use language uh, to communicate, um, that have a number of devices uh, that that, uh, helps them live, that direct their life exceptionally well. And it requires, um, first, a belief, a belief that is to the core that every single human being can direct their own life. And if you can't see the preferences, you can't hear what is making someone unhappy or happy, um, it's about you and not about them. I think that's a big thing in this field is that people with complex disabilities could have to live in group settings or have to be controlled quite a bit. That's that is not true. All of us need certain things to be healthy or all of us. And all of us have things we cannot do, such as replace the motor in our vehicle or, you know, put a filling in our own tooth. Um, so 
it's not a new concept, but it is a new concept in the intellectual disability field that, you know, you, you have to have some kind of pass some test or have some assessment that the system will allow you to direct your own life. That's that's one thing that I think really changed, really changed for us. And also, I think we had this prejudice or bigotry um, because, you know, when you value intellect and uh, when you heavily value intellect and beauty, which most Western uh, societies do, uh, and many people with developmental or intellectual disabilities don't fit into those values that we see on TV or we see in the magazine. You know, we like to have an advanced degree. We want senior in front of our title and on and on. Um, when you lift that up, what's underneath that is you don't really believe people with disabilities are your equal. And that's a hard thing to admit, but it was um, critical that we admitted it. Um, and and there's all kinds of things attached to that. Who would be friends with them? Who would want to be friends with them without hurting them or taking advantage? Who would genuinely like them? You know, all of those strands come from that essential place of not believing that people with disabilities are your equal. Mm-hmm. And that took work. That was work, internal work, that every one of us has to do. Still, yeah, and that's not easy work to to go do to look deep down at at your beliefs and what's been enculturated in our society and uh, and what we believe and to acknowledge it and to really hold up that belief and I'm just going to repeat what you said. Uh, everybody had a a belief that every human can direct their own life, and I think that that's such an important message to share. Yes. Yes, and it's not something you can just write in a policy or engrave on a plaque and say that now it now it's so. I mean, it takes a lot of effort, extreme focus, and it is daily, by the minute, by the hour, by the person. Mm-hmm. When um, or to be alive. Yeah, when you reflect back on all the the. Um, people that that you've served is there an individual or a story that comes to mind that really kind of tested that belief you're like oh i'm not sure (laughs) if this person uh can direct their own life and and maybe how they proved you wrong is there any stories that come to mind well i mean there's lots but one in particular was about a guy named willie and he uh, he was a very large weighed probably 350 pounds and um, didn't like to bathe and you know, didn't like to wash his hair, on and on. So he'd go to the day center and they'd call us up and say, well, he doesn't smell work ready. But, you know, this is just a segregated day center with no real work. And if there is work, maybe you make $2 in a week. And so we went on and on with this and, you know, hassling and nagging him to, you know, do his hygiene and lose weight. I mean, on the surface, right? Not, not things most people would disagree with. Yep, not healthy to be 350 pounds, not healthy to not bathe, you know. And plus, 
you know, you, you know, just can isolate yourself by not doing that. So we felt very clear and very firm that, you know, nothing else were we going to teach, nothing else did we want to discuss until we got those two things taken care of. And then we heard a woman uh, named Jan, and she met Willie, and she said, you know, I want to drop all of this hygiene stuff, this weight stuff. I just want to drop it all. I really just want to get to know him and, you know, figure out what, who is he? And I was, um, at this point, I was like resistant to that because I was saying, look, you know, this is how our competence is going to be judged. This isn't, he can't weigh this much. He can't not bathe. Well, um, he lives in a town called Norfolk, which is a big port town, huge, huge shipping industry. And so it was uh, after a meeting where the day center was admonishing us for not uh, him not coming once again to the day center smelling like roses. <laughs> and uh, and Jan, uh, you know, at the end of that meeting, Jan looked at Willie, and I think they they must have had some previous conversation. And he said, um, he wasn't real verbal. He said, I quit. And so Jan goes, well, I guess the meeting's over. <laughs> so she leaves that day with Willie, and they go um, down to the docks, which is, was about 15 minutes from where this meeting was being held. And on that day, she helped get him a job as a dock worker, where everyone smelled like Willie. The only thing he was missing was the union tattoo, which he had within six months. And he, he went from being like this problem client to a valued citizen almost instantaneously because that guy could lift pot, uh, those pallets all day long. He um, could work anytime because he had nothing going on in his life. So anytime a ship came in, he was pulling the overtime. He's still employed there three promotions later. And, um, you know, we talk about circles of support and all that. Well, those dock workers were the best thing that ever happened to him. I mean, we were probably spending oh, close to 160000 a year on really a service he did not want. But we felt so righteous in providing. And it went down to mm, about 10000 a year because, uh, one, he works a lot. <laughs> Now he has some money, so he, he travels some. He DJs now on the weekend, and he has a support system. Those dock workers come to almost every gig he does. Now, when this happened for Willie, he was 46 years old. We'd already spent probably close to $6 million, $8 million on him of 10 years of misery. I don't want that to happen anymore. To me, it's not about the money, though, either. It's about wasting 10 years of Willie's life. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, exactly. And he just took it. He let, I mean, now, oh, no, no, he lets us know, you know, when he'll be home, when it's convenient for him, for us to help him with his checking account or whatever, you know. It's a totally different guy. Um, but I wonder how many willies are out there. Yeah. And I, it sounds like from the story that what it took was for someone to listen to Willie and, and, to, right. and to understand him. And, and that's Jan. 
and yeah. to help him find his place. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the thing is, is I think what Jan did is she said, um, okay, I'm not going to stay focused on what everybody believes is the proper standard here. I'm going to just stay focused on what does Willie want for his life. Mm -hmm. And if it's not bathing, okie dokie. (laughs) If it's not losing weight, all right. What is it about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no what, judgment. Yeah. And if Willie bumps into that, you know, girl he admires or a partner or whatever, then maybe he's going to decide to go shower himself, right? Well, interesting <laughs> enough, um, it was long after Jan had left and Hector was supporting Willie. And he came to a staff meeting and announced that Willie had joined Weight Watchers the year before and had lost, uh, had hit his goal, had lost 100 pounds. And people are whoop-whooing and clapping and all of this. And I said something like, Hector, what did we do? And Hector goes, oh, yeah, Len, it um, wasn't really us. You know that dive bar all those dock workers hang out at at the end of Redgate? And I said, yeah, I'm familiar with it. <laughs> and he goes, well, you know the waitress, uh, Wanda, who works there with the gold tooth? Yeah, what? He goes, she just walked by him one night and said, you know, you'd be kind of cute if you dropped some of that weight. (laughs) I said, you're kidding me. Wanda with the gold tooth? And Hector goes, yeah, motivation. It's a funny thing. Yeah, too funny. Well, Lynn, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. I want to be respectful of of your time today. Um, Is there a message or a thought that you want to leave our listeners with? I guess the most important thing is I've already, so I've I've already said it. I think it is all of our responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to work on ourselves around the issue of equality, the true equality that everyone has, regardless of disability, and then to take action for those that are still left on the sidelines. Hmm. Perfect. Awesome. Um, Lynn, if folks want to learn more about Hope House or learn more more about you or get in touch with you or the organization, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, Visit our website, which is at hope-house.org. Awesome. Perfect. Thanks so much, Lynn. I uh, appreciate your time today and it was a great conversation. So, I appreciate it, and we'll talk soon. Okay. Bye. I'd like to share a big thank you to Lynn for having this conversation with me on the podcast and for standing up for people with disabilities to really try to share a lot of truths that she's uncovered with her experience at Hope House and to spread those. And I hope that you take into consideration those truths that that Lynn shares and examine your own beliefs and figure out what's true for you. And I hope you think about how you can stand up and stand beside people with disabilities to break them free of oppression. And Lynn shared kind of the three ways that has worked for uh, the Hope House uh, organization and the work that they've done. So Thanks for listening today and next week, join us for my conversation with guest Brian Raymond King. 
And Brian is a coach and he coaches people with disabilities and really helps them to focus in on their mindsets and to create mindsets that will lead them toward living a fulfilling life. So uh, it's a, it was a fun conversation with Brian speaking with another coach and uh, geeking out on that a little bit. So you'll get a little bit of insight into the mindset of a coach and some of the questions that uh, that we ask our clients as coaches. So thanks for joining and we will catch you in a couple of weeks. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, if you like this episode and you think you know someone that would benefit, please share it with them. Uh, be a part of the change to think differently about disability. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability live a full and meaningful life.